Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Hey, Tothy, you familiar with the term emotional intelligence? Uh, yes, Mike. Yes, I am. In fact, um, it's interesting you asked that because just yesterday I got an email. Somebody forwarded me forwarded me an article on that topic. It's very interesting. It is interesting. You must. Well, I don't know. We must run in, in different different circles because I have to tell you, I was unfamiliar with the term until I spoke with our uh, guest today, Susan Childs of Evolution Healthcare Consulting. Well, you and Susan covered a lot of ground in your interview, and uh, I thought she was particularly good at talking about um, emotional intelligence from the 30,000-foot view all the way down to some very specific practical advice. It was really great. Yeah, you don't always get that. So I, I, I agree with you. Our discussion of patients' expectations also I thought was was interesting. And I've got to say from my, my vantage point was uh, slightly unexpected, which I liked. Good. Well, I think the listeners are going to truly enjoy the interview. So let's not delay any longer. Uh, we can get to it. Oh, but wait a minute. With one brief exception. I almost missed this. Oh, yeah. We're <laughs> the show. Here it is, Tothi. Lenative. Alleviating pain or soothing? Ooh, lenative, like ibuprofen or a cough drop. <laughs> or gin. <laughs> you get your choice. <laughs> that, that tells everyone where your mind's going. So, well, <laughs> with that, that's a nice, pleasant word. It's a soothing word. It's an alleviating pain word and a great way to move into our interview, your interview with Susan Childs. So without further ado, here we go. I would like to welcome to Sound Practice, Susan Childs. She is the principal of Evolution Healthcare uh, Consulting, a firm that she has run for the last 18 years. Prior to that, she was uh, in public accounting and then migrated into uh, healthcare administration. She is based in North Carolina, but do not be deceived. She works for practices nationwide. We're very lucky to have Susan Childs with us today. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You have experience helping healthcare entities with interplay of leadership and emotional intelligence, I understand. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm not really sure what emotional intelligence is. Can you describe or define it for me? Sure. And actually, you probably do know it, but you're just not aware of it. So, like so many things in my life, Susan. Yes, please. <laughs> that is right. another session, yes. Um, but really, it's, it's about being aware of your actions and your reactions of how you come off to people and also being aware of, of others and their actions and reactions and how to deal with people in a more positive manner. Personal competence and social competences are the two competencies that make up emotional intelligence. And they are just like just what they sound like. The personal is being aware of your ability to be aware of your emotions and then manage your behavior and your tendencies in a more positive manner. And it's really being aware of what's different about everybody. You know, everybody has their own demeanor. Um, I like standing up for the little guy. I'm just a little bit stubborn and I'm better approached early in the morning, better than late in the evening. And everyone has their own approach, their own values. And that goes to the emotional intelligence and being really in tune with how people are. I think it's really your basic instincts kicking in. We are animals and we're aware of this. We get aware of this 
when we become territorial at work or when we become angry or excited or happy, we are animals and we react. So it's really just being aware of that and managing that in the most positive direction. And the times when it can be most challenging, of course, for an administrator would be when a patient is standing in front of them screaming about their bill. For a doctor, yeah. And it's hard not to take that personally, but it's really not. And that's where the emotional intelligence kicks in. Another example is a physician that has to convince a patient they have to take their medications or they will die, but the patient just won't take them. So it's it's going to where people are. And that's that old saying, and that's really true. If you go to where they are and you approach them on their level, being aware of how that interchange is going to be, that's what emotional intelligence is. And you think about your interactions and your day and how many you have and how you appear to others and how just one confirming statement can make someone's day or ruin it. We, we do a lot in healthcare and we have to be responsible for that. Very interesting. That helps me a lot, but it makes me wonder if this is something, emotional intelligence is something that can be taught or developed. I'm, I'm hoping that it it's not like height or, or eye color just kind of baked into our, our DNA. Is, is, there, is there hope to help people there, there, improve there in this hope. area? Yes, yes, there is hope for some. Um, no, you actually can do that. I would like to get taller. If someone could show me how to get taller, that would be really good. Uh, <laughs> that boat has <laughs> sailed for me. <laughs> But we do have brain plasticity, and that's what it's kind of referred to as brain plasticity. And you just have to use it. You know, we all know there are parts of our brain we're not even using. And it's, it's actually creating a chain reaction of growth. When things hit your brain, they hit the emotional part of your brain before it goes into the, the thoughtful and cognitive processes. And I think that's why your mother told you to count to 10, because you have to take it in, think about it, and then react. So if you can actually make those behavioral changes and we're apt to keep that pattern, that's when it becomes a habit. And if it's rewarding, that's when people keep doing it. So the the result has to be the reward. For example, if someone went up to their front desk and said, we may get better raises next year if we can collect more on the 90 days plus, that front desk is going to be working really hard to do that because the reward is going to be possible raises. And you can go to people and say, we're not collecting enough or we're not seeing enough patients or doctors, you're taking, you're taking too long with each patient. Or you can approach it a different way and say, how can we make it so you spend as much time and you're still supported? Or how can we collect the money and you feel good about it and you get, re- and you get rewarded in the end? Because that's what everyone wants. You know, People are devoted to their jobs, but everyone wants to know, what can it do for me? So you have to explain the why the change happens. You explain that. And a great place to start is just listening to people and then reacting back in a positive way. And that usually works. I, I think that you're kind of anticipating where, where I was headed, but, but maybe we could look at um, an example of uh, a practice that maybe comes to mind about how you assisted individuals uh, or, or a, an entity with uh, emotional intelligence in, in advancing uh, the ball there. Can you give me a a specific instance where you went in and and walked me through your process? Yeah, I mean, every project that I do involves emotional intelligence because we are in the business of caring for people. And that includes having to be, having empathy for the patients and staff members and doctors, 
and everybody that's in it together. So what happens is you build emotional intelligence into your policies and procedures. For example, emotional intelligence tells us the patients want to be seen earlier in the day. So you may open the practice a little earlier because you have a, a, a definite demographic or patient base that really needs that. You open up to that um, so that you can give access to them. Another is financially, um, when you're making payment agreements, it's not one, two, three, it's how much they can do and when they can do it in the month. It's not as stringent. It's working back and forth with an agreement with people. Um, for an example, um, placing a referral. It's how that's handled, where the doctor, the dynamics between the physician and the referrals person, some physicians walk up and very politely speak with the referrals person about a referral, some physicians don't. Everyone should be respected, and that's where the emotional intelligence comes in. It comes in with courtesy. There was one practice I worked with where they called me and they said, we don't know what's wrong, but something is wrong. And it actually turned out to be the manager. And it was mm -hmm. very difficult because she was the one that hired me. And the emotional intelligence in me had to handle her very carefully and explain what had to be done because the entire office was ready to walk and she didn't even realize it. And it was not a good situation. So I had to deal with emotional intelligence with her to get to her priorities and explain to her what was most important, why it was important to her in this position to do these things she needed to do and how she could support her employees. And then we worked with the employees. We had a leadership meeting and talked about everyone's role and how we can all support each other and changed a few things around and we touched base and it's still working. The chain of command still works. Um, the manager ended up going to a different position because it wasn't the one for her and they transitioned and the patients never knew a thing. It was seamless care. Very impressive. So it, it, it strikes me that perhaps emotional intelligence should be tested or a criteria for HR when hiring staff. Is that a true or, or not? Yes, it is very true. A lot of people are now testing for emotional intelligence, especially when dealing with patients. You know, if you're in medical records and you're working with, with charts and it's not a problem, you still have to work with staff members and be respectful with them, but it's not like you have to deal with the patients every day. I actually had somebody work for me and we thought she'd be great at the front desk. She was not, but she was fabulous in medical records. And that's another thing about emotional intelligence is you can work with people's gifts. If somebody has a gift, if they're slightly autistic and they're focusing on certain things, place them in somewhere where they can focus on certain things. If somebody loves to chat it up, put them at the front desk so they can greet patients and be really friendly. You know, If they're really good at collecting money, then put them there. Everyone has their own value. And if you find that, that's really good. The other thing is communication, improving communication between staff. I do a lot of um, teamwork exercises with groups, customer service things. I went to a hospital in Savannah and we did a wonderful, wonderful customer service uh, relationship workshop with all of the primary care practices. And they ask earnest questions. Well, why does the patient say this to me? And if you help them understand why things happen, they let it roll off their back a little more. They're able to handle a little bit more. And they also recognize what each other does at those meetings. It's a good bonding experience. Susan, let's shift gears a bit and look at the patient experience. How's the patient experience evolved over the time you've been involved in, in healthcare? Let's say the last 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, think about 20 years ago. And 
both of my grandfathers and two of my uncles were physicians. And the one thing my father told me when I went to work in a medical practice was people will always be sick. They will always be sick and they will always need certain things. Now, when I was first in healthcare, um, the priority always has been and always should be that the physician and the doctor are central focus to everybody and everyone else runs around that. That's why they call us support staff because we make it happen. Mm. Unfortunately, I'm seeing a real shift towards more relaxed and less personalized approach. So the patient experience, appointment times are shorter. In the 90s, physicals were an hour and follow-ups were 15 minutes. Much harder to find that now. Some offices have five minutes as an office visit. Patients often check in with a kiosk or on their phone and not with a live person. And while that's easier and maybe easier access, you're not having that interaction, meeting that person saying, hello and welcome to our practice. And you may literally walk into a building and pull a number like you do a deli in New York. And that's not right. There should be someone to greet you. You know, if there's a whole line of receptionists, they can say receptionist number five is available for the next person checking in. That would be a nice thing to do. It's more personalized. It also helps patient flow and saves in labor, but this doesn't help with customer service and their experience. So you have to make it up in other ways. There is only 10% face-to-face time now with most physicians between patient and physician. And you think about that. They make the appointment, they do the lab work, they get the vitals, they wait for the doctor, the doctor comes in, they see them and they go. They may get x-rays, they may do more labs, something like that. 10% of the time is with the physician and that's why people are demanding so much more time. So we have to make it look like the physician is there all the time. For example, the portal, even though nurses will often answer the portal questions, we want the patient to think about the physician being involved with that. So you use their name in the decision-making. Dr. Childs would like you to come in within the next week, something like that. Another major factor is the money. There is a whole generation of patients that grew up with co-pays or no money. And now about 40% of your patients will have high deductibles. So you're asking for more money and you're asking for it sooner from patients. And this is sticker shock for them. And the experience that patients have financially can be quite horrendous. Someone may want to go to the doctor, but they know it's going to cost them $1,000 because they have a high deductible and they do not know that they can approach their practice about a payment plan or something like that. And that's where the emotional intelligence comes in, where we have to reach out to patients with things on website that I help develop, you know, messages to patients, um, things like that to let them know you're accessible and ready for that payment plan if you want. Telemedicine is huge. Telemedicine, just offering that, that patient experience, that's like going, you know, that's like the invention of TV or the radio or something. That's huge because there are patients in demographic areas that have not been able to been approached. They haven't had access. Their blood pressure goes up, all these other things. But when you have telemedicine, they get better and the compliancy improves. It's amazing. You've delineated some major changes in the last 20, 20 years. But it seems to me that perhaps it's not just healthcare providers and practices that are changing, but patients as well is their expectations. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's actually um, a large rise of people asking someone to come in and, and handle talk to them about how to handle patients when they get very, very upset. And a friend of mine, Maureen, used to tell me that as the level of premiums rise, so does the level of expectation of the patient. And I found that to be very true. 
And while healthcare is, of course, the forefront of a lot of politics these days, I do believe that everybody should have access to it. You know, it should not be something that only certain people have access to. And I think most people do, but they just don't realize it. So their expectations are, I think, 94% of your patients walking in the door already have an expectation based upon their last experience. So if they came into your office and they had a great experience, that's what they're thinking about. If they didn't, or if they were in a different office and they had a bad experience, that's what they're thinking about. So what they were asked the last time is what they anticipate this time. Also, the expectations altering healthcare, patients have kind of demanded, I think I mentioned it before, longer hours, later hours, Saturday hours, weekend hours, um, things like that, because we are an instant society and people want things when they want it. And it's our job to meet their needs with our offerings, because if not, patients have become consumers and they will be looking for other practices. High deductibles have changed things, there's much more access to different kinds of facilities and patients really want that with urgent cares. But at the same time, that urgent cares are a good example. But at the same time, um, insurances and, and local healthcare groups are narrowing networks. So you're not able to go outside and the patient is not able to make as much choice, which does not meet their expectations. So we'll see how long that lasts. That's kind of similar to the HMOs in the 90s. Interesting. Yeah. It seems to me that patients altering expectations are directly tied to their previous experience mm-hmm. for, better, for better or worse. So that I think that that's um, true and certainly more in the demanding nature. Yeah. And perhaps that's a direct result of the diminished patient physician relationships that we that we see. Um, if I might, I also think it's a it's the difference in the relationship of trust between patients not trusting their insurance to cover something, there's fear, there's trust in, they think there's something really wrong with them and they expect something. And once you tell them good news, they stop listening to anything else you say because that's really what they wanted to hear. That's what they expected. But I think the one thing they expect and we have to hold on to is there's a, there are a lot of traditional parts of healthcare we don't wanna let go of. And part of that is the feeling of being cared for. It's that conversation with your physician. It's that accessibility. It's that receptionist meeting you with a smile. And they're very traditional. And it doesn't mean it has to stop while you pick up the newest stuff as well. One thing that has has changed the landscape, I think, for physicians practicing uh, over the past few decades, electronic medical records or electronic health records, if you prefer. And I recently read a study that said 40% of physicians believe that electronic medical record systems have improved the quality of care. Disappointingly, 44% believe that it had decreased or diminished the quality of care. How do you view technology vis-a-vis the, the patient experience? Has technology removed or diminished the art of medicine? The EMR has diminished the rapport a little bit. The other technology where the tests are available right away and you get results sooner, things like that, that's a beautiful thing. To have you know, more precise and more accurate testing is wonderful. But the one thing I hear at every practice I work with is the physician's head is behind the computer and I don't get to talk and I don't know what's going on. Main thing Every patient will tell you this, that they just want to have eye-to-eye contact. They don't know what you're doing. And then the fear escalates. And again, we have to squelch the fear. Patients, taking care of patients are like 
no other industry and we're dealing with emotions and feelings and that's why emotional intelligence is so important so a physician being aware of the patients being afraid of anything you know for example what when i'm working with physicians i'll shadow with them and if the physician for example says to the patient well right now i'm ordering a test for you and i'm asking Ginny in the lab if she can request a test for you by next week or are you able to come in next week and I can ask Susan to place you on an appointment that's what I'm doing now or I'm looking at your last results how do you feel about this now and they can actually read while they're listening to the patient so if you explain to the patient while you're doing it and you look up as often as possible of course that's the best way to do it the one thing I would reiterate for every physician to do and it's a real pain and nobody wants to do it, but it pays beautifully. Go back and look at your templates, redo them. There's something that we do the first time. It's like your voicemail message. You do it and you leave it alone and you work around it. But your templates can save you so much time and they change. Your practice changes, your, your patients change, and your questions change. So make them personalized for each provider. You can do that with EMR. I worked with a dermatologist in North Carolina who was amazing. He was telling me how he would shave off seconds or a minute off of one type of visit or another visit or questions here and there. And by the end of the day, he had gotten more than 30 minutes extra time. And you can do a lot in 30 minutes. So sometimes you have to go back and do things over. Eye contact is essential, but if we can confirm the care and reduce the fear, that's what the patient's looking for. A hand, a hand on the body, patients want that too. They want to be comforted while they're being looked at on the computer as well. Those are some excellent tips. Susan, you've assisted healthcare entities around the country with physician administrator collaboration. What are some of the misconceptions harbored on both sides of that equation? Oh, misconceptions. That's funny. Um, <laughs> so the thing that I like is... Um, the front desk doesn't think, physicians get all the money, nurses have it easy. What else can I think of? We can just feel blood pressure raising across <laughs> the board, can we not? I mean, and they're all misconceptions, but you know, the, big, the best thing you can do is break that misconception, literally break it, because it will continue unless you do so. So I like to have like a group effort. People see what other people are doing. So you can change roles, you can cross train. You know, the nurses being at the, the nurses in the front desk have this whole dynamic where, you know, why does, it get, why does it take a patient to get back so long? You know, one thing I do as a team building thing so everybody sees what's going on. And I did it at the practice, the first practice I managed, a family practice that was wonderful. And the doctor said, well, how come it takes so long to make an appointment? So what I did was I had, during a general staff meeting, I had a physician take the phone and he was the receptionist and the receptionist went into another room and she was the patient and the physician had to place the appointment. And of course the front desk person had a lot of fun bringing up all the things like, yeah. you know, well, what was that recipe at the PTA the other night? And, and, you know, they would go through five different reasons why they couldn't do that appointment. And then they'd say, Oh wait, I can't do that. We have to change it. And then the physician would see why it takes so long. And, you know, it, it was a lot of fun and people respected it. And, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt, you know, you can do things better. You can always improve things. That's why I have a job. But at the same time, people need to see what people are doing in a positive manner too. That seems like a, a very good strategy to combat misconceptions on, on both 
both it's sides. Fun. It's fun. Yeah. One thing in when I was preparing and, and you were nice enough to, for this interview and you were nice enough to give some impact uh, or feedback, we're talking about administrators and whether or not they had a clinical background. Yeah. And I guess it, at a certain level um, that, that happens and maybe at other levels it does not, but can you talk about clinical experience with administrators, how that uh, either benefits or, or does not benefit a practice? I think um, sometimes physicians who are solo docs will be their own manager as well, which I don't think is a good idea because they should be focusing on the patient care and working with the manager so they can focus on the other issues. Um, I love working with all administrators, but I think, I should say, and I think, administrators that have a clinical background, and I work with a lot of nurse administrators, and the business background, I think has both sides of the equation, which is a wonderful gift to have because they can see things that I possibly cannot, not having the clinical side. That given, if you're an administrator and you're working well with the nurse managers and other clinical people, you can see that. And I would highly implore, as I have, to see and feel more of the clinical side to shadow nurses or shadow physicians, not interfering with patient care, but so you can see truly what they do, just like you want them to see what you do. I think managers that have both sides have a real gift. It's really knowing your staff, knowing your patients, and knowing your doctors. That's the gift. I, I would agree with you. We're running close on, on time, Susan, but let's try to end on a, a high note. And what I'm looking for is a description of a, of a story where you've seen physicians and administrators collaborate in, in ways that worked out. Uh, to be beneficial not only for the physician and the administrator, but also for patients. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I have two practices I worked with, and actually, funny, on, on each end of the country, one's in Nevada and one's in Florida. Um, the one in Nevada um, found themselves just kind of needing a, a whole new revamping. So what they did was they reorganized their departments, the roles were switched, we redefined everything, um, raises were given with expectations heightened. So even though raises were given, we said, this is what you're gonna do for it. And if not, you're out of here. It was that simple. There were many meetings to discuss and introduce um, all the transitions and changes and policies and things we were doing. There was wonderful transparency. So everyone knew what was going on all the time. We had a lot of extra trainings and the staff felt assured by everyone, by the leadership, um, and everyone that we were working towards the same goal and the patients noticed it right away. It was amazing. They noticed people were friendlier, that the, that the staff was friendlier. They noticed that the policies were a little friendlier, that the operations were a little smoother. We looked at workflow. We looked at everything. Managers also work together on projects where staff members from every single department is present. So you get an all over response. For example, if you're looking at a new EMR, you want to know what the front desk thinks because they're dealing with patients and what they do can save time or take time. So you want everyone to be involved and everyone takes pride in that. Um, and that way they're working together and not in silos, which I hate. I want people to work together. It is a team and it creates a cohesive relationship and respect for everybody involved. There's also a great pediatrics practice in Northern Florida and they have grown and grown and grown, and they are amazing. And every year they have an annual retreat where it's more like a big party where 
the lead physicians tell the staff how great they are and what we've all done for the patients. And they actually, one, uh, we do a retreat, we do exercises, customer service, and we give awards. It's, it's about four or five hours. Everybody loves it. We have food. It's great. And best of all is the doctors get to stand there and say thank you to all the staff and how they made it better for the patients. And the patients feel that. They feel it right away. So those are two really good examples. Those make me feel better about things, Susan. Good. Thank you. So, thank, <laughs> thank you so much. You, it can and it must. Thank it you so much for your time. I've been speaking with Susan Childs of Evolution Healthcare Consulting. Her information will be attached to the show notes. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Mike, Susan really had some great advice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The example she gave at the end of the interview of the pediatric practice, I thought was uh, superb. Mm -hmm. I could feel the practice's enthusiasm and happiness just right out of her words. It was great. Yeah, well, because beyond the physicians and staff, patients pick up on the positive vibes too. Oh, that they uh, that they do. You know, the other one, Tothi, I particularly enjoyed was the story of the mock scheduling call where the physician learns firsthand uh, how difficult it is to schedule some patients and how long it takes. Very uh, amusing. Yeah, and enlightening, right? So yeah, some things exactly. seem very simple until you have to do them yourself. So that kind of mystery shopping your own practice can be very revealing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tothi, we're at the end of another episode of Sound Practice. I hope everyone enjoyed our interview with Susan Childs of Evolution Healthcare Consulting. If you did, please consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Yes, we would surely like that. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast or topics, please email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. And please join us next time on Sound Practice. Remember, we drop a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man Robin. <laughs>